0: Shall we begin? Second hand heart. <laughs> Second hand heart. One, two, three. Hello, one and all, and anyone else in between. So by now you may be familiar with a new segment to the podcast called Because It's Your Cause, where guests share about the charity, nonprofit, or cause that is near and dear to them. They also can provide information on the best ways to get involved and support their cause for those who feel so inspired. Since the clarion call for secondhand high is to be well, do good, I feel it's important to facilitate us putting good vibes into best practice. We may not be able to do everything but we can all do something and all the somethings added together mean everything so as always thanks for listening hey howdy and hello and welcome to secondhand high where we hope you leave feeling better than before i'm your host sweeney and today's guest is a friend from high school i recently reconnected with through the power of social media We shared band and AP classes together, and she taught me how to say a cool Lord of the Ring Elvish phrase that I somehow still remember to this day. She currently lives in France and does freelance and contracted translation and interpretation work. Her second-hand high stems from her time as a volunteer doing translation work for refugees and asylum seekers. So with all that being said, Amadine Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, um, like I said in the intro, it was one of those weird things where I think it was just like a regular day and then uh, through Facebook Messenger, something popped up and you were just like, hey, I've been been looking at your stories. It looks like life is good. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, life is good. How are you? And then somehow we ended up here recording a podcast exactly <laughs> um as i i didn't mention this part in the intro but i've i think it's been what did we determine before we just talked had it been like 15 plus years i think it's like closer to 20 actually <laughs> since i've seen you know. or talked to you it's been for, I... it's been since we graduated high school right I think so. That makes me feel really
1: old because that was in 2005. (laughs) I
0: know. Well, that feels forever ago, just like like how we were talking about everything that's gone on since then. It's like, oh, that's like a whole additional lifetime since you see somebody. And yet it's nice when you can like reconnect and still talk and have conversations about like the new kind of phase that you're in. So I want to make sure to like, Share a couple of the kind of the standout memories. So one of them was that you did teach me, as I mentioned, that elvish phrase. I don't remember what inspired you to do that. I don't know how you learned it, (laughs) but I know Lord of the Rings was big. Kind of a big deal when we were in high school and so you just like in one of our classes you just kind of <laughs> were teaching me this phrase and i can't believe i learned it and even more i can't rem- believe i still remember it to this day it's like it's that scene where arwen is it's in the first movie of lord of the rings where she gets frodo and she's like taking him on horseback to save him because he just got stabbed by the nazgul and I sound like a big old nerd right now. But anyway, she's, <laughs> she's racing on her horse and she leaps across this river, this magical elvish river, I guess. And the bad guys are on the other side. The Nazgul, they're starting to get their horse's feet into the water because they want that ring that Frodo has. I guess I should have said spoilers, but if you haven't seen it by now, I don't know what to tell you. So anyway, in an effort to make sure that Frodo is safe, she says something and you can correct me if I mess anything up, but it's something like Nino Chitha Lasto Rimonin Bruinin Dan Ulier Ulier Does that sound
1: about right? Yes. <laughs> right. I will give you an A
0: minus. <laughs> okay, I'll take I'll take an A minus. I feel like I should have like in the background like a clapping track for remembering something so so important that was, <laughs> I may not remember my periodic tables, but I do remember an Elvish phrase that will help. I think it makes the water turn into a bunch of like galloping horses that take the uh, bad guys down the river. So sounds
1: that's, to me like you've got your priorities straight.
0: <laughs> I do. I remember the important things because you never know when you know you're going to come in possession of the one true ring and when you're going to need to, you know, protect yourself. So, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I always remember it and cherish that memory. And then we also had like quite a few AP classes together and I know we were in band. So, you can talk about your memories of that. I just my memory with you from one of our AP English classes that I want to say was in junior year <laughs> was we were doing Edgar Allan Poe and we were in a group with um, a couple other friends, and we had to make some sort of media or presentation around the Black Cat and uh, the Mask of the Red Death. And I think the Mask of the Red Death was like super popular, our rendition of it, because we made this (laughs) whole film and I somehow ended up directing it. I don't know why, but I remember I was the personification of the Red Death. I decided, you know what's going to really look like Red Death? Lipstick and ketchup. And I smelled awful. I just smelled awful. <laughs> the whole thing it was on me for hours. I think that,
1: <laughs> yes. Whose idea was the ketchup anyway? I think, I think
0: it, might it may have I don't been lime. It may have been. I don't even remember. But it's like that stuff took quite a while to come off. So it was gross. But in the end product was just this really great. I wish we had the video the vcr because it was recorded on vcr and i think the best part of it was i felt good about what we would recorded but it just goes to show the power of editing which now i know from doing a podcast but your parents i don't know how they did it but they spliced together all the scenes to make something comprehensible of all the madness that we'd all recorded and so when we saw it the next (laughs) day we're like oh wow this is this is phenomenal this is oscar worthy so we need to have some sort of like treasure hunt for that VCR because I think the world needs to know <laughs> what we created.
1: Um, I'll let you know if no. I find it. Yes. <laughs> I think for- it
0: was just this multimedia
1: production where we had—I don't know if it, I don't remember if it was that one or the other one where we had to start the video at the same time as music yep. at the same time <laughs> as
0: an audio. <laughs> I'm drunk. Yeah, (laughs) because there was no of this splicing together we can do now. There wasn't like all of this easy internet recording technology or any of this was like a five years. I feel like this dates us, like you said, like makes me feel old. But like this was prior to smartphones circa 2005. So if it was nowadays, we would have done all of this on our phones, which is nuts to think. (laughs) And we could have done all sorts of cool probably Like special effects and whatnot. But considering our limitations and everything, I thought we did an amazing job.
1: (laughs) Yes, I'm very proud of us. (laughs) I am too.
0: Anyway, well, those are just kind of some of my fond memories, us being in band and doing all these classes and being the first graduating class of Pittman High School, it was the second high school to be built in Turlock, and we got to be seniors essentially for three years because they only had freshmen and sophomores in the first year, and so we didn't have ever any upper class men like, above us for the entirety of our sophomore, junior, and senior year, which I don't usually think about all that much, but it is kind of weird because like we didn't have a baton to take. We just kind of were trying to raise the yeah. bar for all of the different groups and clubs and, and everything. We had to start everything from scratch. So there was a lot of pressure, but there was also a lot of coolness factor to that because we didn't have to compete so much because there was kind of more room for everyone at that phase. So That's true. Do you remember,
1: I don't know, I think it was in Santa Cruz where we had a band review where we won second place and we kept shouting it from the bus. We're like, we got second place and we're just a bunch of freshmen and sophomores.
0: Yeah, the first year. So do you want to explain what a band review is for the uninitiated?
1: Sure. So it's in high school, if you're in a marching band and you do a competition with other high school marching bands and you're, I mean, they judge you on every single little thing, right? It's not just about how well you perform the actual music. Everybody has to march in. In a line, it, does, it can't become a diagonal all of a sudden and things like that. You have to not wear any jewelry. Your hair can't touch your uniform, which I have really long hair. <laughs> that yeah, was a do. mess for me always. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and you're just never going to look good in any of those uniforms. They decided, I, I guess it was a dark green with the silver because those were our colors. We were, yes. I've never seen that color combo <laughs> anywhere else, but I think they were, <laughs> we're just trying special. to think, yeah, they're like, what's the opposite of blue and gold? Because that was Turlock High's colors, So we were bulldogs our first year, I believe. So Maybe like, that's
1: the- how they decided that, yeah. <laughs> that's
0: how I think the of it, because I'm like, hmm. silver's the opposite of gold, and green isn't really the opposite of blue, but it's kind of like, it's like a dark color, a primary color. So anyway, I remember, I think I drove you nuts because in banned <laughs> with this one thing i would do going back to lord of the rings like i played the flute and you played the trumpet right Mm -hmm. and so like i was not a great flautist but i really felt good about myself when i like could pick out a melody or something and so that was always fun so i figured out the little intro music to lord of the rings that do, 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 do. I figured that i on the flute, and then I would just play it nonstop. And I'm pretty sure sometimes I did it just to, like, bother you. <laughs> I, you were like, don't you know anything? else <laughs> <it>. not really <laughs> to be fair in high school
1: i do not believe anything related to lord of the rings no matter how much it was repeated could have annoyed me i mean if you didn't know about lord of the rings it was difficult for me to relate it's just like it was my thing <laughs> <laughs>
0: it was so maybe I was annoying someone else. I just, it might've been Gabby then because Gabby was in band too, and she played the saxophone. <laughs> I just would play it over and over again because that's just how I was. I probably would do that now to this day. But I think when we talked, I mentioned, we don't necessarily play our instruments much anymore. I bust out my flute. I always tell myself, I'm going to like get it out maybe once a week and like kind of practice. And then it only ever comes out on December 24th of every year on Christmas Eve where I play Jingle Bells and a Holy Night and stuff like that. That's more than my trumpet. <laughs> so the trumpet never makes its way out anymore.
1: Not really. And it's back in France now, I think. My, so my parents moved back to France and they probably took it It's somewhere in the all of the things that they took with them.
0: <laughs> well, that sounds like the beginning of a fascinating movie where you're like in France and you find your old beloved trumpet and now it's imbued with magical powers or something. And so you can do all these magical work, good deeds with your magical trumpet. I could roll with that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll get on the script development for it. But um, before I waltz any further down memory lane, it should be time for you to actually tell us a little bit about your upbringing and who you are, besides a Lord of the Rings fan.
1: Besides a Lord of the Rings fan, that is going to be difficult, but I'll try. (laughs) I was born in France, and when I was 12, I think around 12, my dad got a job opportunity in the U.S. with the same company he was working for in France. And so my whole family, so that's my mom and my dad and my brother, younger brother, moved to the U.S., to Turlock, of all places, and it was quite an experience. I have to say the school was much better than the schools in France because in France the teachers tend to be really strict. They tend to make you, unfortunately that was my experience, they tend to make you feel humiliated and not a good thing whereas in the in the US anything that you do that's a little bit not awful they're just like hey good job just like you know tweak this a little bit but good job <laughs> so
0: that was great so you grew up in Turlock which is in the central valley of California so was it kind of a huge culture shock for you
1: it was it was kind of a slower culture shock because when you get to the US i mean for me as a 12 year old i um didn't see as much of a difference as you might see if you're going to I don't know say China or even the buildings look really different in the US everything was bigger but not necessarily completely different and I started to see that people's mentality was a little bit different and got used to that everybody's always really friendly at first like when you first approach them and I found that was great it also kind of makes it confusing when you're trying to really see okay who are my friends like you know my my best buddies which ones are of those out of all of those people <laughs> yeah I don't know how to explain it better than that but um that was kind of one of the culture shock things that happened and oh I learned English <laughs> I uh, only had had maybe the equivalent of a year's worth of English before I moved to the US and mm-hmm. it was all UK English so it helped me a little bit but not a ton.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's just, I think we talked about this too, there's just nothing quite like being immersed in a culture or region for you to really learn and understand about it. I learned Spanish from like my freshman year of high school all the way through college, but it wasn't until I lived in the Dominican Republic for about 19 months that I really could understand what people were saying and be able to respond to what they're saying. It's just not the same to kind of read and listen as when you're like completely surrounded by it and you have no choice but to learn to communicate.
1: That's true. And I, in my first day at school, actually, I had to, at some point, Ask a campus supervisor how to get to my class because I hadn't figured that out yet. And I was very stressed. I thought that teachers were going to maybe yell at me for being late or something like that. And I figured out how to say, Please, can you tell me where is my class? (laughs) And I saw that the campus supervisor actually understood what I said. I thought, Great. And then he answered, and I didn't understand the
0: answer oh like, Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah that's terrifying I remember that feeling too you're so excited that you got out something comprehensible and that someone was not like I was told once that it sounded like I had like a Russian accent when I spoke Spanish and so it's so nice and it's just this great feeling when you realize that someone understands you but yeah then it's a whole other area of your brain it's a whole other skill set to be able to understand and comprehend what someone else is saying So communication is wild. It's a wonder that we can understand each other at all. That's very true. So is there anything else you want to share about your formative years and your time in the States?
1: Sure. Well, I guess that language experience really inspired me. Because after learning English, I went on to pursue a master's in translation and interpretation. You know, I knew that I, I love languages and I didn't want to be a teacher. And I thought that was just the logical next step. Just take that mastery of language even further and do the exercise of going back and forth between English and French. And we had to record each other. I remember during my master's degree, we had to record each other all the time, especially for interpretation. So anything we would interpret, any exercise, we would record each other. Now, with interpretation, when you're doing simultaneous interpretation, which is just speaking, you just, you're just you listening and speaking at the same time. So you have... 0.5 seconds to think mm. about how to say things.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so you make very silly mistakes and then you're recording yourself and then you listen to yourself and you're like, I know English. I know that that's not how that's said. We're <laughs> <Gosh. laughs> saying thing with French. And it's very frustrating at first because you're just like, these are mistakes that I shouldn't be making. But also because, of, because you don't have to, the time to think about how you're going to say something, of course you're going to make those mistakes at first, right. especially.
0: The fact that you learned English, which is supposed to be one of the harder ones to learn because it makes no sense when you think about it. So it's, it's impressive. So how, you, it sounds like you talked about a little bit about how you realized you were really into translating and interpreting and you wanted to kind of make that a career.
1: Yes, and I'm very proud that I actually got to get my degree in that because it was a very challenging master's degree. I went to the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. After my first semester, we were just about to start our simultaneous interpretation classes. And my professor, and shout out to her, she's amazing. She just, you know, made us cry sometimes, but she's amazing. She told me that I should probably not go on to do simultaneous interpretation, that she couldn't, I guess, see me doing it based on the fact that I was struggling with other exercises and interpretation that were kind of a prelude to that. And that was really discouraging But then I had all of our winter break to think about what I wanted to do. And I thought, hey, you know, my grades are not that bad. I'm not failing anything. And there's nothing stopping me from actually trying. And we'll see what happens. And I think that really changed something in me when I started to think like that, of having that mentality of just, going for it and seeing how far I could go instead of really stressing about the exams that I had to take during the, that first semester. That meant that during the second semester, I was a lot less stressed before exams because I thought, hey, you know, I, it's okay if I don't make it. I'm just trying my best. So it really reduced the pressure. And I was able to do all two years of simultaneous interpretation too. And uh, that's part of my job now.
0: Oh, look at you. I I love those stories about because it's so easy for us to be influenced by other people and what they have to say. And when people have more experience than us, we just, you know, whether it's like a doctor or a teacher, we tend to sometimes stop listening to our own intuition or wants or desires or goals and let that person's opinion dictate what we do. But sounds like you were able to end up doing what you really like to do in spite of all of that.
1: Yes, I really enjoy that. Part of the work that I do in uh, translation and interpretation, when I got my degree, so that was in 2014, mm-hmm. shortly afterwards, I started working as a contractor for the State Department. And they have programs that have been going on for 80 years, which I didn't know about before doing doing them which are called the International Visitor Leadership Programs. And the point is to invite people from all over the world to the U.S. for a few weeks. And they're all people who have a theme in common in their professional lives. Like maybe they're all working around mining industry or they're all healthcare professionals or... They're all studying cybersecurity in some capacity. So they come to the U.S. and have a series of professional meetings in different cities with different organizations, government agencies, just people who are working on the same thing professionally. Those are really rich discussions and really interesting meetings that we end up going to in all those different cities. And it's great. You
0: get to travel. Yeah. I, I mean, I love it. I mean, it sounds fantastic. It sounds like something I kind of had thought I wanted to do at one point was translating an interpretation because it's just you must hear the most, like you said, rich conversations. It just must be so interesting to constantly be learning new things and like strengthening your own skills and figuring out like, oh, how do I want to say this? Like you're kind of holding up a mirror of a, a communication mirror to people and being like, this is what this person said. And this is what this person said. And you know, it's it feels kind of like it's, or it seems like a big responsibility that you have to those people to try to get it as correct as you possibly can.
1: It is a responsibility, but it's also, you have to know that we're not always doing it perfectly and it's not really about some unattainable perfection. You mm-hmm. just, you try to get the message through. If your sentence structure is not always perfect, you know, that's not a huge deal. You're just trying to do the best that that you can and trying to, if you don't know a word, you just have to work your way around it and explain it some other way. But mm-hmm. as long as the message gets through, that's what's important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really great and, like you love it so that makes me happy it's always cool to hear like that your peers went on to do things that they enjoy and love and that are making like a difference out there in the world trying to <laughs> <laughs> doing my best uh so what el- what are other things when you're not translating and interpreting and rocking it like how did you end up back in france and when you're in france what do you like to do with your time
1: so, let's see. What do I like to do when I'm not translating and interpreting? I like reading uh, more and more these days and trying to get back into it. Mm-hmm. I had a phase of just being kind of over-reading, probably because of, because of school, but now I'm, I'm getting back into it. Okay. And uh, singing. I like to sing Celtic music, and I like playing board games. <laughs> so, that's basically what I do, and that's what I did uh, in the U.S. already, and that's what I do in France, too, now that I'm back. I, uh, I used to live in D.C., rec- well, more recently, I guess, and I moved, back, I moved back to France in 2017. It was the first time that I could move somewhere that was not really work-related, that was purely just my choice, and I have family around. I have some family that lives close by, in Nantes where I live now. So that's uh, something that I enjoy because growing up, it was great to have my parents and my brother, but the rest of my family I would only see during summer vacation if they were around, you know? Yeah. Because summer vacation was always spent in France. (laughs) (laughs) And now that I'm closer to them, it's good to feel like I can be more uh, part of their lives and they can be part of mine
0: more than before. I know you mentioned to me that your whole family moved out to Wisconsin, right? For a bit? Yes. Yeah. And so then for you all to kind of make your way back to France, because you have your mom, your dad, and then your brother, Antoine, who I think as, as I had told you, like you had mentioned he's like more or less, it sounds like a rocket scientist at this point, which I had told you doesn't surprise me in the slightest because we were both in theater. It was my last year of high school and it was his first year and he was just so serious about like theater I was kind of a goofball in that class and just theater was really my thing but you could just tell he was like we need to do this right we need to like get good grades and I was just like oh my gosh why am I like three or four years older than you and I feel like like you're my older brother or you're the mature one so yeah
1: <laughs> he sometimes feels like my older brother and he's my younger brother yeah
0: I know So it was just it was always funny but I enjoyed your family your parents were always super nice and like Antoine cracked me up like when you're that serious but he also had like this kind of undercurrent sense of humor like it was so weird when I was like getting to know him I was like I never would have known he was Amadine's brother unless I already knew that so it's always interesting when you get to know people's like your friends siblings and stuff and see how like some things are similar and some things are wildly different very true (laughs) That's a fascinating story from France to the U.S. to France again. A Martin family tale. <laughs> there and back again. <laughs> yes, a hobbit's tale. <laughs> of course, that would have to, you know, be brought up. Because, Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really cool. And congrats on your master's and being in France. You showed me a little bit of the outside world of where you lived. And it just like it was such a cool view of like older looking buildings and just like it just looks like an adventure outside of your house so (laughs) it was really cool to have a bird's eye view of that so i guess unless there's is there anything else you wanted to share in terms of your backstory i think we're pretty (laughs) set i think we covered it all and then some okay all right well i guess then without much further ado would you like to go ahead and share with us your second hand high sure (laughs) So I think I've
1: told you a little bit about the International Visitor Leadership Programs. Yes. Um, so that actually where some of it started. There was one particular one that was really impactful. And another program for which I interpreted that also inspired me and kind of set the scene for that high. The the other one is the Pan-Africa Youth Leadership Program. It's a program through which different high schoolers from different uh, Sub-Saharan African countries come to the U.S. for three weeks, learn about social entrepreneurship and learn how to go from the idea of doing something for their communities to an actual project that they can implement at their scale, maybe in their school or in their neighborhood. It can be about anything that they want. It can be some uh, social cause. It could be the environment, or it can be women and girls' rights. We've seen all kinds of things. And just when I thought, again, going back to what we were saying earlier about when I was in high school and what I was doing, I was just this person who was obsessed with Lord of the Rings and would hurry up to finish homework so that I could go play. And here are these high schoolers who are thinking about how to fix things that they already see are not going well in their communities. So I was very impressed by them and thought, you know, like, you can do good at any level, no matter your age, no matter anything at all. There's always something you can do. Mm -hmm. And that was really inspiring. And then during one of the adult programs, so the International Visitor Leadership Programs, there was one particular meeting at an organization. And I don't remember the name of it, but it's an organization that supports refugees once uh-huh. they arrive in the US. So they've already gone through all the vetting processes and everything, and, they're, and they arrive in the US. And what this organization does is, first of all, they'll provide housing. So that means refugees will get a furnished apartment with all wow. of the basics. Plus, as soon as they get there, they'll have a culturally appropriate meal ready for them. And then they get support with looking for a job and just being just Knowing how to be, you know, in the US and uh, integrating. And they have a pretty intense timeline to try to do all that, which usually they require more time. But I, I just remember hearing about that and, yeah, being really inspired by that kind of work. And there was a specific interview then with refugees that benefited from that program. I don't remember all the details of that interview. All I know is that it was this couple, and I believe that there was one family member that was left behind because she wasn't able to complete the processes, maybe for medical reasons. It was a really heartbreaking story. Mm -hmm. And something about it resonated with me, and I'm not sure what it was, maybe that I was also new to a country once, I didn't know how anything worked in the US before. Maybe it was that for my family, it was a choice that we got to make because we had that privilege. And for them, it's more something that happened to them. It wasn't a choice, they needed to leave their home. So coming out of that, I really, really wanted to do something with refugees and I signed up for a program in Washington DC where I was living at the time. But at that time, I already knew I was moving to France, so I didn't have a whole lot of time left before I was going to leave. I wanted to get on one of the mentorship programs, and the aim was to be the contact person for a refugee or a family to kind of explain to them how things work in the U.S., to maybe spend time with them, suggest activities, Mm -hmm. and if they have trouble maybe getting a phone or a phone plan just basic things about life that they would need to know how to do, you were going to be there for them. And I really wanted to do that, but they had a a six months minimum for continuity. They wanted really you to be with the same person or group for a while, which makes sense. And I just didn't have that time, unfortunately. So I thought to myself, you know, when when I get to France, I'm sure I can find something related, even if it's not the exact same thing. So then I got to France and I was looking for organizations that work with refugees. And a friend of mine told me about one called SOS Méditerranée. And that is an amazing organization. They do such incredible work. It's a nonprofit that is a European non-profit that was created in 2015. And they hired a ship just purely with all the donations. From people. Currently that ship is the Ocean Viking and what it does is it rescues people who are coming off the coast of Libya in North Africa or in the Mediterranean. And they chose that place specifically because it's the deadliest migration route. There's over 23,000 people who died while attempting to cross since 2014. And right now, there's still no viable rescue operations there. Right now, it's mostly NGOs doing that work. So you can Mm -hmm. imagine people are leaving their countries. They're fleeing all kinds of things. They're fleeing war, famine, sometimes things like child marriage or other desperate conditions. Or some of them, you know, their goal is not specifically to get to Europe. They just want to leave so that they can find a place that has job opportunities so that they can provide for their families. Many of them end up in Libya due to human trafficking. And in Libya, it's a lawless place. Anybody with a gun uh, can say that they're the police. People are arbitrarily imprisoned, tortured. Their captors ask their families for money to release them. This is It's all a business to them. That's all it is. And human traffickers in Libya make these desperate people pay a lot of money to attempt to cross the Mediterranean. And what happens is they'll put them on these small dinghies, essentially plastic or wooden boats that are absolutely not seaworthy. They should be considered in distress as soon as they leave leave the coast. And these boats are way overcrowded. There's little or no food or water on them. And it can be hours on end before they're either rescued or the people will be taken back to Libya by the Libyan coast guard if they're caught. Or if neither of these two things happen, it's likely that the people will drown. As soon as you step into one of these boats, you're risking your life, basically. And it takes two days to go from Italy, which is the closest place, to the coast of Libya, even with a proper ship. If you're talking about a plastic boat, the kind of stuff that you might see at the beach, right? Like that, except a little bit bigger. A plastic boat like that and a small engine. Even assuming you can manage to steer the boat in the correct direction, it's mission impossible. So our ship, the Ocean Viking, looks for these boats and rescues people and then takes them to safety in Europe. So as you can imagine, I'm not a sailor by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) No? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. I am useless on a boat. All I can do is throw up, okay? That's all. (laughs) That is of no help to anybody. So as a volunteer, what I do though is help raise awareness, talk to people about what's happening like I just did now, and raise funds. That means we have booths at different concerts and events at festivals. We can participate in roundtable discussions. We can hold information sessions in classrooms. Actually, I've done that mostly for high school students. And we're there to make sure that the Ocean Viking has the means to keep on sailing and to tell the stories of the survivors that we help rescue, just so that people are aware of what's happening. So that's what I started really doing. And that was a really great volunteer experience. I'm still very much involved with them now. The only thing when I started that was I... I felt really removed from the action. Again, I'm not a sailor. I will never set foot on that boat unless just for like a visit, you know? So yeah. if you just raise awareness and funds, you just, you're looking for something more in a way. So that's what I wanted to do. And at that point, this was 2018. Mm-hmm. And a volunteer from SOS Méditerranée told me about another organization that was called L'Autre Cantine. It was just barely being created at that time by a group of young people aiming to organize a meal distribution every evening in a public park in downtown Nantes called Davier. It's right in the middle of downtown. It's a few minutes from where nearly all the tram and bus lines meet. And at that time, more and more people coming from different countries, usually on those boats, like I talked about before, to seek asylum, had started sleeping there for lack of better options. And individuals had started cooking and bringing food there. So setting up that organization, L'Autre Cantine, really provided a way to pull everybody's actions and scale things up. The people who started it took over an abandoned hotel slash bar slash restaurant uh, which they slowly turned into their headquarters. And everybody would put all the donations there, and everybody would cook there together. They, cre- they had this also social media presence where they, they created the, a Facebook page. Other organizations and individuals also started helping the people that were sleeping at that park. There was, for example, CIMAD, which provides free legal assistance, and that's just one example. And at that point, this actually is not just my secondhand high story, because more and more volunteers helped. Some of the refugees and asylum seekers themselves became volunteers. There was a mix of people, you had old, young, retired, sometimes just people passing through the city and sometimes hardcore activists that showed up at all the protests and others that were just there to cook. So many of us actually felt that high and it had a snowball effect. But also this, again, this is happening in the middle of downtown. There were upwards of 500 people sleeping in that park at, I think, uh, by the end of it. You couldn't walk past it and not be at least a little bit interested in what was happening and what all those people were doing there. Donations started including things other than food, such as blankets, hygiene, uh, and feminine products, tents, mattresses. And activities started getting organized, too, uh, like uh, trash pickups. It was a survey for legal action, also. There were a group of people that went around and asked questions about the living conditions to actually take the city to court for failing to provide accommodation for these people. There were people who were specifically helping women and children. You know, this is a huge number of people we're talking about. They were living in unsanitary conditions all summer. There was one bathroom for every 50 to 60 people. And from what I remember, they were only open during the day.
0: Oh, no were, one has to go to the bathroom at night, I guess.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> Many people just had one meal per day, and that was the meal that we brought them from L'Autre Cantine. The, by the end of it, there were rats there. I mean, it was dirty. Oh. And people living there would spend their lives waiting in, in line. Like, you wait in line to eat, you wait in line to go to the bathroom, or you use showers, or for your administrative procedures. That's all you do all day, mm. is wait in line. So that was uh, just a terrible situation. So what I did is I helped cook. And then I helped with meal distributions. When I say cook, I cut vegetables. Okay? I, I, didn't, <laughs> I wasn't in charge of the menus or anything like that. <laughs> Fair
0: enough.
1: I was then at the meal distributions. And the more it went on, the more I was more at the meal distribution part of it. And then I got to really talk to the people that we were helping. Sometimes we even ate together. And it's funny the way they would do it because we would give each person a plate. But what would end up happening is there'd be one plate and three or four people around it (laughs) sometimes. And just because they like just sharing that food and because that's how you do it sometimes in some of the cultures that they come from. So I would eat with them. And then when we first started getting clothes as donations, I remember this. I would make these long lists of who needed what. So at that time, only volunteers were allowed to access the donations room. So I would just go and say, okay, what do you need? Pants, what size and everything. And I had some some people who would speak, well, Arabic uh, sometimes helped me because Arabic was a main language that was spoken. English helped me, but not always. And just getting the names, shoe sizes, pant sizes. And I would go to that room with all the clothes with that list and try to get everything together. And then I would hide that in somebody, one of the volunteers' car... And then hunt the people down that were on my list one by one <laughs> to try to see if the pants or the shoes and everything would fit them. It was very, it was unwieldy and it was exasperating. Now there's a system. <laughs> Since then, they set up a system. I'm so grateful for that. There's clothes distributed once per week with volunteers supervising as people pick out what they need. I think that's how it works now. <laughs> Don't okay. quote me on this. <laughs> I won't. So that's um, that's what ended up happening. So that was the situation for the entire summer 2018 and into September. And like I said, there's organizations that took legal action against the city. At the same time, the city actually called for the camp to be dismantled. To make a long story short, both procedures happened at the same time. Mm. And what was decided was that, yes, the camp would be dismantled, but that, yes, accommodation would be provided to all of the people. And because they had no way of knowing who lived there on a regular basis or not, they said, okay, who, whoever is there the day that the police comes in is who we're going to take to another place for accommodations. Some people were there, some people were scared and were not there. Some people who, regular, who didn't live there on a regular basis were there anywhere that day. It really depended. It was kind of up to everyone. But um, in the end, they kind of spread everybody out th- throughout the city in different, I think in different school gyms where they'd set up temporary accommodations and everybody kind of had their own path from there. So that's how that ended. And also the volunteers that had been with them throughout that summer, we didn't have access to those places. So it was kind of an interesting, it was a weird situation where, you know, we were a part of this, but now we can't go visit because why? <laughs> yeah after that the l'autre cantine decided that they would keep on going and keep on cooking because you know it's all well and good they found accommodation for the people that were there but of course there were more and more people coming every day still and they were new to the city and now the police was really cracking down and and not letting them sleep anywhere basically they couldn't sleep at the park anymore and uh nor anywhere else. So we were still we were still cooking. The the need is still huge. And at that time, I kind of took a step back from l'autre cantine for a bit, but I had kept in touch with some of the volunteers from different organizations. Uh-huh. And this is how I actually ended up also providing emergency housing for unaccompanied minors sometimes. Wow. So that's a whole different uh, different thing where there was definitely a need. There were some minors that sleep outside every night. And I don't really have a big space. So I really chose to focus on helping girls. Just because I know they're well, they're pretty high on the list, and they—it's likely that there will be some accommodation for them at some point. So I was like, you know, I can be the—I can provide emergency housing so that they don't have to spend those two days that it takes those those organizations to get organized uh, in just out in the streets.
0: Yeah. I think these are all good examples because they all kind of flow into each other, too, in terms of working with refugees and asylum seekers. And I think it's just overlooked how important of a work that is. It's not something that's really highlighted here in the States either, where there's a lot of people from a lot of different places who, whether it's a caravan or people also trying to get in, through a boat like when you're in a desperate situation you're not thinking oh well there's lines and these borders that I just can't cross like and I tell people in my life this too I'm like you know if your family was in danger and it was like you needed to get out of the states and you needed to flee to Mexico or Canada like you wouldn't necessarily be super worried about whether or not it was legal or whatnot you'd be worried about keeping your family and loved ones alive. So I think that aspect gets severely overlooked when it comes to these things. And then I loved how you mentioned a culturally appropriate meal, because like when you come over from somewhere else, it's a culture shock. You mentioned three to four people being around one plate in the States. We'd be like, get out of here. Like, this is mine. (laughs) But It's true. But like in other places, it's it's more communal, like just even how people eat and speak and interact. Like I know in some countries, it's like really taboo if you're even before the pandemic to be within like, you know, a foot or of someone's personal space bubble. But in other countries, you're constantly touching and hugging and like it's just everything is so different. So people have this fantasy I think sometimes that oh someone should come over and they should immediately like be able to switch turn it on and off like a switch but like your culture is ingrained in you it's something that is part of you so I don't think you ever turn that off I think you kind of meld it with other things and you could obviously speak better to this than I could but like that's kind of how I felt when I went to another country in the Dominican I was like okay I still have all this these Americanisms. But I think a lot of what you said really has put me to thinking just because there's so many aspects of culture that exist. And for organizations to take that into account when they're trying to serve people and to say, hey, we want to make these folks, we want to make their experience as welcoming and comforting as possible. I think that makes all the difference In the world to someone whose lives have been completely uprooted, because even if you have to leave where you live, that doesn't mean you stop loving where you lived or loving your culture or history. That doesn't mean everyone does. But like I said, it's a part of you. And so I think having people who are welcoming you into a new country and a new space. And just having that little bit of familiarity, someone who speaks the language that you do knows what you eat and how you eat and how you interact or entertainment, whatever the case may be. I think that is huge. So, and I don't think it's something we've ever covered on this podcast before. So I love that you shared that. And I think it's frankly amazing to, you know, hear about how you got involved Is there any particular instance from volunteering in your work that kind of stood out to you where you really feel like either from a fellow volunteer or from someone you were working with where you kind of learned uh, something that stuck with you or made you feel uplifted because of what they did or said?
1: There is one story in particular that I think might have made the difference between me hosting or not hosting Uh, people because actually before hosting anyone I asked myself a lot of questions you know you you kind of think okay how am I supposed to do this uh, for how long how is that going to be determined can I trust them you know we welcome somebody to your home but you you don't know them (laughs) at all. is okay, can I trust them? What's the deal? (laughs) And it's okay to have those questions. It's healthy to ask
0: those questions.
1: Keeps you from making mistakes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you have to be safe. Your well-being has to be considered in these instances as well.
1: Yeah. And I remember this one man, I think he had a business of some kind, and he wasn't at home a lot. And he hosted this guy, I think... I can't remember if it was someone that was also sleeping at the park in Davier or not, but somebody who would probably otherwise be sleeping in the street somewhere anyway. And he told me, yeah, I mean, this guy, you know, <laughs> he's cool. He has my key. He can come in and out as he pleases. He's just living his life and I'm, I'm living mine. And that's how we roll. And I just kind of listened to him and I was like, Wow. He would leave him alone for days at his place and it was totally fine. And, you know, nothing happened <laughs> except that, you know, hey, that that guy had a place to stay and it was amazing what he did.
0: It is impressive how some people are able to open up their homes and hearts and people are in need. And I like that you prefaced it with the safety portion, because I think a lot of times we all have for the most part, good intentions. And it's I don't even think it's necessarily that other people are bad or want to take advantage. I just think sometimes people don't know differently than depending on their background. And we don't know what people's backgrounds are. So my kind of thoughts are being as generous and open hearted and compassionate and volunteering and all of those things as you can while also putting your safety as a priority as well. Well, not to give too much of a spoiler, but I know that because it's your cause, is one of the organizations you've already mentioned. So would you like to tell us a little bit more about that and how people can donate and get involved? Sure.
1: So, yes, I would love to talk to you a little bit more about SOS Méditerranée. Okay. This year, I became one of the two events coordinators for the Nantes group of SOS Méditerranée. We're a little bit uh, spread out throughout France and various European mm-hmm. countries. So as I mentioned earlier, part of our job is to tell the stories of the people that are rescued by our organization's ship, mm-hmm. the Ocean Viking. Right. So I just want to give you kind of a mental picture of what's going on. So you can imagine fleeing your country. And there can be, again, a thousand reasons. Take your pick. People from different countries make their way to Libya and Northern Africa either on their own for work opportunities or because they've fallen prey to human trafficking. As mentioned, Libya is a lawless place. Anyone with a gun can tell you that they're the police, people are arbitrarily detained for ransom, uh, tortured, they're forced into labor. And oftentimes, the only choice people are left with, whether or not their goal was to reach Europe in the first place, is to cross the Mediterranean. Now imagine you're spending weeks in a dark building. You're eating only pasta every day. And then one time in the middle of the night, you're being taken to the beach in a truck with a hundred other people, more or less. And everybody gets on this flimsy plastic boat, one by one. No one is allowed to change their mind at that point, even when they see the conditions of the journey that they're about to attempt. The traffickers are all armed. They will shoot anyone who tries to run. And it's so tight that everybody is sitting on the lap of the person behind them in the boat. The boat has a small engine, some extra fuel, a phone, and a compass. You don't have food or water. None of the traffickers accompany the people on board. During the first few hours, it's unnerving. And then you see the sunrise. And it's downright horrifying because everyone sees that they're in the middle of nowhere, sometimes with waves six feet high threatening them. And the only protection is that plastic boat that is paper-thin and was never meant for the high seas. If they go the wrong way or get caught by Libyan coast guards, they go back to what so many of them call hell on Earth and prison, where they have to pay to get out again. Even if they're not caught, these boats have no chance of making it across to Europe. That means everybody, the men, the women and children that they carry, will likely drown. And this is what our ship is rescuing them from. And I've heard sailors who have been on the Ocean Viking, and they say it's such a strong feeling when they find one of those boats in the middle of the ocean and they know for a fact that if they'd gotten there a few hours later, these people right in front of them would not have survived. And yet here they are. One woman actually gave birth in the middle of the ocean before being rescued once. Imagine the level of desperation you have to reach to even consider undertaking such a journey, or at least
0: if there was any choice at all. Yeah, no. I can't imagine ever making that choice. And for those of you familiar with the reference,
1: what do we say to the god of death? Not today. Not today. (laughs) That's exactly it. And on board the Ocean Viking, survivors find relief. They find respite from their journey. They're safe. They're cared for. They're treated as human beings, sometimes for the first time in a long time. They're given psychological and medical care, clothes, food. That's what we do. You know, there's medical professionals on board. They take care of these needs. So if you're anything like me, useless on a boat, not a sailor, not a medical (laughs) professional, also, by any stretch of the imagination. none of the
0: above. (laughs) Right?
1: (laughs) There's still things you can do. Operating a ship like that costs a lot of money. For the Ocean Viking, it's over $15,000 a day. And most of it comes from private donations. This is all from people who refuse to let the Mediterranean Sea turn into a giant cemetery. So if you wish to make the difference between life and death for someone, please donate. No amount is too small. I know $15,000 can seem daunting. But hey, a dollar plus a dollar plus a dollar. Eventually you get there. You do. and And we've been doing it for years. It's worked. So it does make the difference. If now is not the right time, or if you wish to help in other ways, you can also just get informed. You can talk to people around you about what's happening in Libya and at sea. You can talk about... The stories that I just told you today, you know, SOS Mediterranean's website is actually also in English. It's a great place to start. You can find lots of good information on there, including some powerful stories from survivors. So if you just look up the name, you'll find the website right away. It's very easy. You can find lots of good info. That's also where you you can go to donate.
0: Awesome. And I think you have the website as well that we'll put on the show notes. But do you mind sharing that now too? Sure
1: i'll spell it out <laughs> so e n dot org
0: and like I said, we'll put those in the show notes, too. Uh, I definitely can back up what you're saying and agreeing as someone who works for a nonprofit. Just anytime people are donating, it seems to spur on more and more donations because it becomes more aware in people's consciousness. So I think a lot of times people just don't even know what's available. And especially here in the States. I think we kind of get siloed off a little bit. Like, I'd never heard of this before, and it's absolutely mind-blowing to think that this kind of stuff happens, but it does. It happens in all in all sorts of parts of the world. And lest we feel super special, human trafficking happens in the United States all the time as well in different forms, both sexually and exploitative labor. So... These kind of issues are everywhere, but awareness, I think, like you said, is huge. It's necessary. And the more we shine light on these type of things, the more support we can provide for them. And the more hopefully we can help people in these unthinkable situations, quite frankly. so. Thank you so much for sharing that organization and all the support that is available right under our noses if we take the time to look. So yeah, well, keep up the incredible work as long as you can. You know, I know sometimes everyone has to take a break and this kind of stuff is like emotionally heavy, I'm sure, right?
1: It can be, yes. I found, (laughs) and I'm not sure if this is compassion fatigue or a skill, (laughs) maybe somewhere in between, but I find that I can listen to these stories, I can talk about them. Um, and I I guess in a way deal with the emotional part. Like, mm-hmm. I know it's tough, but I can talk about the, those stories and
0: tell people what's happening and
1: then I'm okay, you know?
0: Yeah, it sounds like a healthy place to be. But I think did a good example of saying like in these situations, every hand on deck literally and figuratively helps. Uh, I absolutely love this. It's so powerful. I think it's really important for people to hear And I'm really glad you shared. So, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us before we head out onto the high seas of the rest of our day?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to let everybody experience this secondhand high firsthand, so to speak, because I wanted to let you hear what hope and relief sounds like aboard the Ocean Viking by playing a recording of a song that a group of survivors improvised while they were on board. It's in French. And the lyrics more or less mean, we know we can trust you, Ocean Viking. You've saved us from drowning. You've saved all our children. We thank you and variations thereof. And I just really love for
0: you to hear that. There's some visuals that go along with that. And we can put the YouTube link for that in the show notes as well. So now I'm going to go ahead and play an excerpt from the SOS Mediterranean Rescue Channel. Tu nous as il a de de fait ta joie Il n'y a pas de, de faire confiance. Océan, ami, il n'y a pas de faire confiance. Océan, ami, il n'y a pas de faire confiance. confiance. Well, this has been quite a journey, I think, and hopefully our listeners will be able to take what's been shared today and be able to get involved in any way that they see fit, if this is a cause that speaks to them. So it was really a pleasure connecting with you again. You guys are the people in high school who, you know, first friends and first kind of relationships, but kind of set the stage for other people you meet in the future. And it's something... You don't really forget those people. So it was just really nice to be able to reconnect and hopefully we can continue keeping in touch because I look at all this fascinating stuff that's been going on that I didn't even know about. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) there you go. Let's definitely keep in touch. Yeah. uh, I mean, you'll always be
0: you were in that part of my life and that's forever. So (laughs) agreed. And likewise. But besides, you know, I, I mean, I set a pretty high bar for Elvish there at the beginning. Are there any like Elvish words or farewells or anything that you know that you could say to kind of send us off just maybe a simple goodbye namarie <laughs> Can you say it one more time i was like prepared and then i'm like oh i don't know what that means <laughs> <laughs> namarie namarie which means goodbye well once which is never enough again thank you so much for being here and i hope you have a wonderfully high rest of your day thank you you too okay <laughs> Do you have a story about a time you experienced a secondhand high? Then don't be shy. Sharing is caring. To have your story featured on the podcast, you can email secondhandhigh.omy at gmail.com. And that's all spelled out. But second is spelled out as S-E-C-O-N-D. Or you can message the Second Hand High Facebook or Instagram page. While you're there, feel free to leave a gushing, glorious, glowing review. Thanks for listening. And remember to be well. Do good. Oh, yeah.